Welcome to What's Left to Do. I'm your host, Janelle. This week, we get to hear from Carl. Not Marx, but Bayer. (laughs) Our darling Carl grew up poor, though he didn't know it at the time, in a conservative evangelical family. Interestingly enough, as a native Virginian, one of the experiences that contributed to radicalizing him involved none other than the latest dem with egg on his face one Terry McAuliffe. (laughs) Gosh, this is a podcast with great timing. have to interview today well his name is carl unfortunately not marx but bear (laughs) how are you doing today Carl? i'm good i'm good yeah yeah right on um how have you been lately Uh, i've been all right i've um been doing a a, getting a lot of writing done recently so that's always i'm always happy when i'm productive like that because i can't force my writing it just yeah, comes correct, correct, sometimes when it when it's there when you're yeah. when your ideas are fully developed no i completely get yep. it uh, what's funny is like even just for the little like paragraph that i have to write for this for the intro and after like it can take so long and yep. it's <laughs> but you right you can't force it yeah yeah, yeah it's it's one of many reasons why I don't work in media because there's no way I would be able to hit deadlines. That's right. And just churn. Yep. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's yep. right. That's right. Yeah. Well, you are a, I would consider you a member of, you know, independent left media mm-hmm. commentary, political analysis. Yeah. Um, and, you know, people, the people who are listening to this have probably, you know, seen you on Twitter or read your work. I'm um, subscribed to your su- subscribe to your sub stack. That's very difficult to say uh, quickly. Um, but I'm very interested to understand like how how you got to this point of um, pretty incisive um, and consistent um, analysis regarding uh, your politic and ideology. So let's get into it. Okay. What do you say, mate? Sounds good. <laughs> uh, so where'd you grow up? Uh, I grew up in, it's called Lacey Springs, Virginia, mm. actually, mm. just outside of Harrisonburg. It's called that because when uh it gets very cold. The springs freeze in kind of a lace pattern on the ground. The oh, wow. springs are very close to the top. So, oh, okay. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. But it's a. Uh, ha- so how far, how, like, where is lace, lace springs relative to like the Washington DC suburbs, like way far South or kind of Southwest? <laughs> it's, it's uh Southwest about two hour drive, oh, okay. uh, depending on how, fast you're driving but yeah it's about two hours away so it's not so far away that i can never visit but it's not somewhere i go a lot sure 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 sure. okay what was it like growing up in lacey springs um it was it was nice it was just very quiet and uh 
I lived very far away from all of my friends um, in the country. I do have a twin brother. Oh, okay. So I... Fraternal or identical? Fraternal. Okay. Fraternal. Okay. He's okay. very, very... De- very conservative. Oh, he, politically? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Um, he has... Uh, I, I'm going to be embarrassed here because I've lost five kids, mm. I think, at this point. I think. Yeah. Come on, Uncle <laughs> Uncle Carl. <laughs> it's so easy. Let me think. One, two. Yeah, it's five. Whoa. whoa five kids whoa. now. Okay. Um, And uh, he's very much like, I. the way I always say it is we were both sort of born on the cusp of generation x and millennials like right on that border Mm -hmm. and he got a very good job that he's had um all of his life he has a house Mm he so it's very much sort of that old lifestyle Um, kind of like stable american dream that idea yeah yeah and it's something that is relatively accessible to generation x Mm -hmm. um and it's the life he wants to live sure um I am have always been very different in the sense that I um, have had a bunch of different jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not married or mm-hmm. ha- I don't have kids or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I've traveled around and moved around a lot and d- lived in different places. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like culturally, you know, my mm-hmm. my brother is very much kind of a product of the 90s he likes old grunge music and Mm -hmm. stuff like that Mm -hmm. i kind of kept listening to music after that Mm -hmm. and so (laughs) we just have we we have very different taste in a lot of stuff too why do you think that is though it's not it's like it's not like your brother like 10 years older than you You guys were born probably you know minutes apart i'm sure so why how do you think that difference came to be I think maybe this is just kind of a theory, but I think that when you have a twin, uh, one way that you sort of develop a personality is and sort of an individual personality is you draw a contrast to the other person. Ah, okay, okay. And so my brother, I, I think that I was always a little bit more adventurous mm. and a bit more... Um, in in a sense, a bit more sort of liberal minded in that sense, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, whereas my my brother has always been very um, sort of he, he has very similar values to the rest of my family. Uh. Um, and so, yeah, I think it just had to do with distinguishing ourselves as individuals when oh, we were younger. And that's how it went. Yeah. How do you if you're comfortable saying how would you describe the how did you just put it how would you describe the the values or the or the um i guess values um mm-hmm. of of your broader family growing up how did you how did you understand them growing up so my uh my family is uh i would say very conservative mm-hmm. in in a sense um in that you know like they've almost always voted republican mm. And by almost, I mean, I think the last year was the first year my mother didn't vote Republican. In um, 2020? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly I I guilt tripped her a lot. And I think that um, 
she's uh, and but the reason was also very conservative it's mm -hmm. because she's my parents are both very committed christians uh -huh. and so there are a lot of obvious reasons why they would have a problem with trump sure, sure. um there and so my dad definitely voted trump but mm -hmm. i do not think my mom did gotcha, gotcha. in 2020 sure yeah gotcha. in 2020 i gotcha but um in any case so yeah my um Parents were always, you know, conservative Christian in that sense. Mm -hmm. We went to a very evangelical, I mean, they called it a non-denominational mm -hmm. church, mm -hmm. but it was, I would say it was very evangelical and kind of Pentecostal. Ah, so there is lots of tambourines, <laughs> lots of noise, speaking in tongues, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, all, all kinds of stuff like mm -hmm. that. Um, my, but I would say my parents um have a real kind of tolerance mm -hmm. to them um which you don't always see with conservatives sure so i've never felt judged by them at all for oh, okay. my politics good, good, good. um i have i have very good conversations with my especially my mom mm -hmm. all the time we're able to find a lot of common ground sure and it's kind of it's really informed the way that I relate to conservatives more broadly. Sure. And um, how would you how how would you say you relate to conservatives more broadly as a as a function of your relationship with your mother? I think that um, as well as I put it, and this is kind of where my Marxist take comes in on this. Okay. We grew up relatively poor. Okay. I would say. Mm -hmm. Um. My so my whole family knows what it is not to have very much money. Ah. Um, my and my family knows what it is to have bad jobs, mm -hmm. to have a bad boss, mm -hmm. things like that. Um, and they have a lot of compassion for poor people too. Ah, okay. Um, they you know through their church they do um, a lot of charity work and mm -hmm. stuff like that. My mom works at a daycare where they um, kind of have like a church affiliated daycare sure. where they have kind of a staggered income thing to let mm -hmm. poor folks uh, into. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'm able to. My my parents are sort of they are capitalists. Mm -hmm. And they have kind of the residual residual uh, fear mm -hmm. of the word Marxism sure. and um, socialism and stuff like that that just comes up from growing up during the Cold War right, and all right, that. Right, right. And that's only going to go away with time. Mm -hmm. um, but I am able to find a lot of common ground with them uh, when we talk about just sort of how unfair a lot of our economy is, uh, how um, how rich people have too much power, how um, hmm. it, it, I can talk to my dad sometimes in terms of like competitiveness uh -huh. and say, you know, like if you want to if you want to start a small business, you're just not going to be able to get by. Mm -hmm. And um I tried to get him to sort of see that as a systematic problem within mm -hmm. capitalism mm -hmm. and not just bad luck. I gotcha. Um, my mom is um, 
she's she's very open. She'll follow a lot of what I say Mm -hmm. um, until the very last step Ah. where I'm like, and this is why we need state intervention. And then she gets worried and recoils. Why? It's just that residual um, Cold War mentality like a fear of totalitarianism or something or Mm -hmm. authoritarianism it's yeah it's Mm. a fear of loss of freedom and totalitarianism and that's especially for people from their generation it is caught up with um religious oh mm. yeah religious stuff where they worry that uh the government's not going to let them be christian anymore and stuff like that i see so um Again, I think that there really is not much that can be done about this in the short time. I think that it's just going to eventually die out the further we get a- away from the Cold War. Hmm. But so for now, um, it's a, a lot of these conversations with uh, my parents are trying to get them to understand where I'm coming from, sure. trying to find common ground. I don't really necessarily expect to change them. Mm-hmm. Um, I can sometimes sort of get them to see certain things different ways, I but like, um, well, I don't know. I don't know if they would have voted for Bernie Sanders. My, mm-hmm. even my dad, who is significantly further to the right than my mom thought that he had a lot of integrity mm. um, and that that sort of thing is important to him. Of course. I uh, didn't agree with his economics and stuff, but especially like in 2016, the contrast between Sanders and Trump sure. and Clinton um, made it very clear to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just sort of the integrity, I think. And that, that was, um, I thought that was a major part of Bernie's appeal. Yep. And that's why whenever online I saw a lot of people saying he should curb his talk about socialism, he should try to spin it this way or that way to sound better. And I was just like, that's not going to fly because mm-hmm. number people can w- sniff out inauthenticity. Yeah. yeah. People can sniff it out. They're going to know what he actually wants. Mm-hmm. And that takes away like one of the few things that even the right admires about mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. Um, that takes, so, you know, you had um, people explicitly saying like, even uh, I think it was Harvey Gay mm-hmm. saying he should not talk about socialism. Mm-hmm. He should uh, talk about the new deal and mm-hmm. stuff like that. I was just like, but that's everybody knows that he thinks of himself as a democratic socialist. Yeah, that's right. That's his thing. Yeah. He's not going to fool anybody at this point. It's just by switching at the last minute. Yeah. 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 Did you how did you understand your parents politics growing up? I mean, you 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 can make sense of them now as an adult. But growing up, how did you understand them? And did you buy it? I did. um, (laughs) I think I. I did very much at first. I was, I would say that I was pretty conservative until maybe like middle school. Huh. What happened? Um, there was, as there's a extended sequence of different things that happened. Break it on down, brother. Okay. (laughs) Well, um, the way that, I think about it is first I had a uh, grandfather who is very influential to me. Mm-hmm. He, he was also religious, but he was very much a skeptic. Ah. 
uh, when he uh, died, the, the sermon that they gave at his eulogy was on Thomas. Mm. And the, uh, Doubting Thomas from yeah, the Bible? Okay. Yeah. Because um, he was very much a skeptic, and he had a lot of books about skepticism of Christianity and stuff by like Carl Sagan and mm, stuff like mm. that. When he died, it really affected me. And I took a lot of his books and started reading them. Mm -hmm. And I would actually be like reading them in the back of church ah. while everybody is speaking in tongues mm -hmm. and sort of, I'm just sitting there in the back, sort of quietly reading. Sure. And that, that gave me a little sort of emotional and intellectual difference from kind of the ah. hotbed of evangelical values mm. and ideas and mm. stuff like that. It kind of gave me the opportunity to think critically, ah. I think. Then um, I went to a Mennonite high school mm. and I became sort of very involved in the Mennonite community. Mm -hmm. They are very liberal, uh, very internationalist, mm -hmm. um, and pacifists. Mm -hmm. Um, and I picked up, I, I picked up stuff from them too. Mm -hmm. Um, I, they, because they're liberal, they aren't very skeptical of capitalism or anything like that. But mm. that again was kind of another thing that helped me get some distance hmm. Uh, emotionally and intellectually from the evangelicalism I grew up with because they were, they were Christians who were liberals. Ah. It was okay to be, it, it was okay not to be like a Republican or mm -hmm. a hard right with mm -hmm. them. I, I think I started to become radicalized um, during the Nader campaigns. Ah. I, of 2000? Yeah, okay. 2000 and 2004. Uh -huh. um, I worked for him. Mm -hmm. I, um, and just seeing like, I, I guess I grew up with this idea that anybody who ran could, had a shot at the presidency <laughs> ah. and it was on a level playing field. Gotcha. And then I worked for Nader and I just had this firsthand glimpse of all of the dirty tricks and all of the the way that the system is just completely stacked against him. Describe describe the dirty tricks and the how you understood that at the time. Like okay. the system being stacked against him as a candidate. I'll give two examples. Okay. One, um, he was trying to get on the Virginia ballot mm -hmm. one year and you had to get so many signatures mm -hmm. uh, to get on the ballot. So I remember going around petitioning and then gathering in signatures and we turned them in. And we found out that uh, the Virginia Democratic Party had gone through and disqualified a huge number of them, ah. said that they were illegitimate. Mm -hmm. And actually, the uh, current gov uh, candidate for governor in Virginia, Terry McAuliffe, mm. led that effort. Ah. So they asked me to go in and look at the signatures and see if they had disqualified any of them illegitimately, yep. basically try to claw them back. Mm -hmm. And I spent a day just going through signature by signature. And not only had they just clear, like they, it, they would have signatures that were perfectly legible, yeah. that they would just strike out as illegible. Huh. And the, 
very interesting thing I noticed was that a lot of the names they struck through um, seemed to be either foreign sounding names uh-huh. or sort of like not good old fashioned white biblical names sure. like that kind of thing. Sure. Like it seemed it, it, I, I couldn't quite pick up the logic behind it, mm. but it seemed to me like they were either sort of hoping that people would look at that name and not recognize it and yeah. think, oh, it's illegible. Oh, I see. Or they were hoping that, OK, well, this person probably isn't doesn't have legal representation, so they aren't going to fight, fight it. it. Yeah. So. That was one thing. And because I'm sitting in there all day, mm-hmm. you know, it's just pounding away at me just how unjust this is. Yeah. And how uh, I thought it was dirty. The other thing was um, in 2008, mm-hmm. uh, Hillary Clinton, when she was running, came to my university mm-hmm. and uh I was involved with student government then. Where'd I, you go? Uh, George Mason. Ah, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just a like webmaster for them or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I was paying... Well, what, what happened was, because I was working for Nader, uh, we actually had our own rally at Mason. Mm-hmm. And while I was driving him in to the rally at Mason, Nader's sitting in the front seat. Mm-hmm. And he says, uh, Carl, who paid for that rally for Clinton. Mm -hmm. And I said, uh, I assume the university did. Mm -hmm. And he's like, well, we aren't paying for, or or they aren't paying for our rally. Ah. And I was like, why not? And he's like, because it's illegal. Oh, that's a public institution. Ha ha ha. That's, and that counts as an in-kind contribution. Ah. And so he was like, so you should look into this. Mm -hmm. So, I um, filed some Freedom of Information Act requests. Oh, wow. I got um, receipts. And sure enough, the university had illegally paid for a lot of that rally. I put together a report for student government. Uh, They wouldn't do anything about it. The university wouldn't do anything about it because they like the idea of attracting these big political names. Sure. So I uh, contacted the uh, FEC Mm -hmm. and asked them about it. And they just straight up told me, yeah, she broke the law. But honestly, like all they'll have to do is pay a couple like a a small fine if they get prosecuted. They don't care about it. Wow. You are if you really want to make a big deal about it, uh, your best uh, tack would be to contact the IRS mm. and challenge the university's nonprofit status. I mean, good grief. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and at that point I'm just like, yes, there really, there's no way to sure. do anything about it. So these are just two little yeah. incidents and there are a lot of little things like that, mm-hmm. but it just became perfectly obvious to me that the way our party is, the way our democracy is set up, mm-hmm. like there really is no challenging these two major parties yeah it's stacked and you start thinking thinking about that and you start thinking about the other ways that our society is kind of systematically stacked Mm -hmm. so that you can't you start thinking about um 
you know, the things like poor people often stay poor. Mm -hmm. They have no chance of getting rich. Mm -hmm. The capitalism tells us that you can bootstrap yourself up. That's right. And um, once you start thinking critically about it, that and you realize it's entirely possible to have this system where it looks like poor people are free, but in fact, they'll never have any way Mm. to pull themselves up. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's what got me thinking critically about capitalism. But describe. But okay, we're going to we're going to reverse back from college. But growing up, you said you said you're when your grandpa father died you started yeah. reading the books he left behind about skepticism and then you went to a Mennonite high school I believe yeah said. so describe the before and after in terms of your how you understood the world like before grandpa died grandfather. how did you make sense of yeah. things um or before, what were your ideas yeah. about things mm-hmm. uh before my grandfather died I had very sort of standard uh right ideas mm-hmm. um I thought of uh, Christians as a like sort of the ultimate persecuted minority. Huh. Um, I really even white ones. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. that's a very common idea among I evangelicals. See. I, see. Um, I uh, it, it's kind of weird, like the way that a lot of uh, folks on the right think about racism and stuff like that, because on one hand. Um, and it's like, yeah, there's such a thing as racism. Mm-hmm. But then you start thinking about, but all the stuff that the liberals and Democrats want to do about racism mm-hmm. is taking it too far uh, or it's stupid and mm-hmm. counterproductive and people care too much about it anyway. Mm-hmm. And so um, I so that was kind of like how I thought about race issues. I thought that. um I I just kind of assumed that capitalism worked. Mm. It's not. I mean, I guess I was so young that I probably wasn't thinking through it too much at that point. Uh But um, and I did have I did have kind of like it seems and this is how I often have talks with people about capitalism and try to get them to think skeptically about it Mm -hmm. it always seemed odd to me not that there are rich people Mm -hmm. but that there were they were so much richer than Ah. everybody else so like the way that capitalism justifies the is meritocracy sure they've worked very hard to get to where they are and i'm thinking about it and i'm like as a child you're thinking about it yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. I, I would think about it and I would be like, you know, I'm I'm sure that Bill Gates works harder than me. He was the richest man in the world at the yep. time. Yeah. But I don't think that he is really working like billions of times <laughs> yeah, harder than right. me. That's right. That doesn't seem possible. Yeah. Like that seemed very weird to me. I see. And the right has all of these rationalizations for how yeah, there are problems like that, but it's not capitalism's fault. Mm. And like, it's the government meddling in the free market. And if the free market were left to do its thing, there would be more competition mm-hmm. and all that. Um, so, but yeah, I was like, um, I was reading Rush Limbaugh books at the time. Mm-hmm. I was. Uh, and it made sense to you pre your the the beginning of your yeah. enlightenment, we'll call it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it, it it all and but what was I'm trying. Go yeah. ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. And I was just gonna say, mm-hmm. and 
a lot of um, right wing thought does have a real kind of logic to it. Mm -hmm. Like it's not just and this is the thing a lot of I think liberals don't get like people on the right aren't stupid. They aren't always. I mean, they aren't ignorant. Mm -hmm. Um, They a lot of them. So they have a different way of thinking about things. And I think a lot of times what happens, especially today in the U.S. is people are so segregated Mm -hmm. in um, their little political niches that a lot of times they just don't get certain ideas seriously challenged. Yeah, 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 that's right. They have an idea of what a liberal would say if you argued with them about it, yep. but they don't actually. So, you know, it was like last night, a guy who worked for um, Trump's White House mm-hmm. was talking to me on Twitter mm-hmm. and he was just asking me stuff about socialism. Mm-hmm. And it was very clear to me that he was kind of like, he kept trying to gotcha me on little things Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it was all stuff I'd heard before. And it was just very clear to me that he had never really encountered or had much of a conversation with somebody like me Ah. who is just openly like, yeah, I'm a Marxist. I think Marx is right about this and that and all that. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's, he's probably assuming that I was just going to try to hide the ball on that and all that. But, but yeah, I, it, um, a lot of right wing thought just made perfect sense to me. Mm-hmm. But what, what was the, uh, what was this? Uh, tell me if you understand what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. What was the state of the, the, the ground or the firmament of your mind that allowed that like seed of like the bookshare your grandfather left behind to like take to start to germinate you understand what i'm saying like did you did you did you mostly believe it but you had some questions that didn't in some parts of it didn't make sense and then when you started reading your grandfather's books after he passed it was like oh that's why that one thing that's kind of been nagging you know what i mean like explain that so um actually uh theory of evolution was a big thing in terms of what do you mean a big thing so i was brought up a creationist Oh. And I, uh, I, re- I had books. I went to seminars, and I wish I could. I had this one book. It is hilarious now. <laughs> like to think about the kind of they. It, it is just full of arguments about why evolution could not be true and mm-hmm. why the world had to be only six thousand years old. And it was uh. really funny stuff. Like okay. The sun is shrinking at this rate. So if you went back this far, it would be touching the earth. Uh-huh. So it, the earth can't be that old. Uh-huh. And is just page after page of stuff like that. Interesting. And um, my grandparents uh, thought that was very silly. And I remember them. I would go to visit they them. They thought creationism was very yeah. silly? Oh, okay. Uh-huh. And I remember visiting them um, in, they lived near DC. Mm-hmm. And they would take me to the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. Yeah. And show me like One dinosaur bones yep. and stuff like that. And, um, or they would show me like Neanderthal bones and mm-hmm. just uh, ask me little questions. Mm-hmm. Like, how does this fit into your ideas and they would get me thinking okay okay um and 
I became very interested in the theory of evolution, mm. read up on it. And I, you know, so like I've learned stuff about radiocarbon dating mm -hmm. and realized, okay, yeah, there's no way the earth is 6,000 years old. That yep. doesn't make sense. Uh. Um, once you run into stuff like that, mm -hmm you start asking yourself, okay, well, what else do I think that ah, isn't true? I see. I see. So like another, another, uh, sort of shift in my religious thought was that a lot of people in my old church, um, talked about demons a lot, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. casting out demons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I would be told, uh, stories when I was a kid about how, demons like to watch you through mirrors and windows when you weren't looking mm. it was during the satanic panic ah, ah, ah. and scary time to grow up if you're a little kid yeah, yeah like yeah. terrifying yeah. uh but as i got older i started getting frustrated because i was like how come i've never seen one of these things hmm. like it would be it, obviously it would be scary but it would be kind of cool to see this <laughs> weird thing that is not it, that's not natural mm -hmm. and all this and it never happened yeah and i started getting frustrated and i'd be like how come like i always happen to be out of the room when the demon appears and you know <laughs> stuff like that and so they're just sort of little I, I think this is a very common experience yeah. like um i'm not it, there are a lot of folks on the left who grew up in christian yeah, um, very families. religious yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, so I don't think that this is a unique experience no. for me at all, but it's just how it happened with yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, No, no, I don't. I, don't, I wasn't trying to suggest that it was unique. Oh, I'm just yeah, trying to yeah, understand yeah. like what was what was the. What well, was I the... think. Well, no. The the only reason I say that is because I think a lot of I think there's a misconception on the left and the right that this is a unique thing. Ah. Like I think. Um, one of the most common things in the world when I'm talking to conservatives mm -hmm. is they assume that I'm just utterly unfamiliar with Christianity. Oh, no, and, no, no. Um, it, it's, and then you have like a lot of folks on the left who sort of see it as like a very unique thing of theirs that, and a lot of times um, it drives, I think, a certain resentment yeah. because you get folks on the left who get mad that they were misled mm. and, or, brought with that and that makes them mad and just you know i just tell them so many people have had that experience yeah. and it's not people tricking you or anything like that it's right. just a different culture and yeah, you a different learn way to of think understanding differently things. Yeah, yeah. yeah yeah um what when you said that you you your family understood what it meant to be poor like how did you understand your family your immediate family's like class standing growing up I, I would say a lot of it I didn't I didn't really realize how poor we were until I got older. Huh. Um, when you're very young, you don't necessarily know these Correct. kind Correct. of things. But like I found out um my mom pawned off her wedding ring to get us toys. Oh wow. Um, For Christmas? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um it little things like, oh, I would um I really liked soft pretzels so what i did was i would take hard ones and dip them in water mm. and oh. eat them that way okay um i think our our family uh my dad's a hunter mm -hmm. and 
we lived off of a lot of game ah, growing uh -huh. up and um, also gardening, yeah. as you saw when you came in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so we like that was a lot of our food. Mm -hmm. My dad. Uh, so my dad's job for most of my childhood was when there are lightning storms that mm -hmm. hit radio towers mm. um, because they're tall and they're metal yeah. and they knock radio stations off the air. Mm -hmm. My dad was the guy who climbed up to fix them. Whoa. And a lot of times that involved like um, it was very it, it really scared me because yeah, it involved dangerous. Yeah. And they're you're like moving antennas that weigh a ton yeah 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 and i remember um my dad i remember times when my dad would be climbing up and he would ask my brother and i to hold this line <laughs> that was basically sort of holding the this antenna that weighed a ton mm -hmm. and that if it fell it would drag him off the tower with him Aww. and we would be kind of holding it back yeah. down there and one thing I got from that was just a giant fear of heights. Yeah, <laughs> so sure, to this sure. day, and and it was because I was always afraid my dad was going to fall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, what did your mom do for work growing up? My, um, my She's, mom. She, was she still working at the daycare? No. So my mom was um, for for a while. She didn't work. She mm -hmm. was just taking care of us. Mm -hmm. And then uh, once we were kind of old enough, she uh, was a music teacher. Ah, okay. That's and that's even at the daycare uh, she does today. Uh -huh. uh, she's teaching little kids music. I see. I see. I see. That's what she's always done. She was a preacher's kid and mm -hmm. grew up singing hymns and stuff like that. I see. So but she's did, always been a music teacher. I got yeah. you. Did, but so did growing up, did you you didn't under you didn't realize how how poor your immediate family was. But did you. Yeah. So did you think that most kids in your area more or less like live like you? Or did you understand there were differences based on money? You understand um, what I'm saying? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Actually, I I actually, for a while, I thought that we were actually pretty well off. I huh. thought, wow, wow, this is a huge house ah, and stuff like that. Uh -huh. um, we have, and, and a lot of our neighbors are, one of the kids we used to play with, he had three brothers and they all lived in a hollowed out school bus mm. um kind of parked out in the woods like oh, a wow. half a mile down the road wow uh with both with two parents i wasn't really sure what their parent i think they only had one parent i see i see i see i wasn't entirely sure, sure. of their parents situation um <laughs> you actually passed it on the way in the other uh down the road in the other direction mm -hmm. uh there used to be a trailer and uh where this family lived mm -hmm. and then they actually won a little money in the lottery huh. and so they built a cabin mm -hmm. around the trailer oh <laughs> and okay. so it's very it's very odd you walk into the this little house and then mm -hmm. there's a trailer in the middle of it oh 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 you you mean they literally built the cabin around around, it. around the, the oh, house wow okay all right so um i th i thought growing up that we were doing pretty well for ourselves I, because you because <laughs> you had a you had a a 
typical or you had a like a a proper independently we had, structure of a home yeah we had a i mean this this house is very old and it's mm -hmm. always kind of in different states of disrepair and stuff like sure, that sure. but it's a house it wasn't a trailer it wasn't a holdout yeah like school bus i see yeah um huh. so i i thought that we were doing pretty okay and you know it wasn't until I grew up that I started thinking about stuff like, man, we we ate a lot of a uh, deer meat. Well, meat and um, we didn't even have grilled cheese. We had cheese toast. So uh, it's just one slice. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah. yeah. If we had like a lot of stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it took me it took me a while. to, And I started asking my parents like how much was my dad making and oh, stuff wow. like that mm -hmm. and so there it, we were right around the poverty line for a long time i got you but you didn't understand you didn't but you i didn't, didn't understand, understand the gravity of kid it. i got you um huh. yeah and so it was only as i grew up um it was really i think once i started uh spending time around the mennonites mm -hmm. Um, because these aren't sort of the, they're called old order Mennonites, mm -hmm. which are the ones who use horses and buggies and they kind of look like Amish folks. Yeah, yeah. These weren't them. Mm -hmm. These were, uh, very sort of modern in a sense. Okay. And a lot of them had money. Mm. Um, for example, uh, you know, uh, have you heard of the Rosetta Stone software? Yeah. Okay. The people who invented it uh, went to my Mennonite high school. Oh, interesting. There and huh. so there. It's very funny because they, in a sense, they live austere lifestyles. Sure. Um, but they're just like very. They're very well off. I got you. I got you. Interesting. Um, and it wasn't until I saw the way that people like that live mm -hmm. that I started getting an idea of okay, this is what the middle class is like. Ah. And then when I moved to DC, I was like, I start meeting uh, upper class people. Yeah. Um, like rich. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, like I would see them in college and stuff like that. And I'd be like, okay, this is what upper uh, class people are like. Mm, I see. Then when I lived in, especially when I lived in Russia, uh -huh. I was, I, you start going to places that um, most people who live around there can't afford. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you say, oh, okay, so this is what oligarchs live like. Ah. Like this is, so then you start, over the years, I start getting an idea of just how rich the rich are and sure. how poor the poor are. Ah. And it, that, that drives a lot of my politics and the way that I think about it. I see, I see. Yeah. When it was time for you to go off to college like were you mm -hmm. was it your family expectation that you go to college yeah oh, okay yeah and what what do you think your family or your community's like dream was for you going off to college well um like what were you supposed yeah. to do with your life and be <laughs> well the um i when i i was a very in high school i was a very terrible student what do you I mean was, i was really rebellious and lazy why um i just i Were just like to have fun okay it, part of it is i'd like to have fun yeah part of it is also because i was bored mm -hmm. um 
a lot of I in retrospect, I can see that I wasn't being challenged sometimes. Ah, ah. Uh, but that wasn't all of it. A lot of it is just because I'm a lazy person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, uh, so when I was um, in high school, my guidance counselor told me um, maybe you should look for a technical college or something mm. like that. Mm. Um, they just assumed that I wouldn't get to college. They wanted you to go into the trades. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I, I spent, my, I went to a community college, mm -hmm. uh, failed out in the first year. Whoa. Um, cause you weren't going to class or what? Yeah. I wasn't going to class and there's girl trouble and stuff like that. And so I, I was, you know, you're young and sort of get caught up in that stuff. Sure. And sure. Sure. I, uh, spent the next year working at a retirement home, mm -hmm. um, first washing dishes in their kitchen mm. and then driving around their bus and driving people to doctor appointments okay. and stuff like that. Okay. And it really sucked. Like, especially mm. washing dishes. Sure. Sure. Terrible. And so I went back to, I, I was able to go back to community college after a year mm. and I was motivated then because, because you did not want to go back to washing. I did dishes. not want to go back okay. to washing dishes. Understandable. So I, yeah, I got through community college and then I moved up to D.C. and uh, went to Mason. What were you studying in community college? In Well, community college, you're just kind of getting a um, associate's degree. So it's just you're taking like general mm. stuff. You don't really pick a major. Well, what, what were the classes you enjoyed the most at community college? Um. It was even okay. So I had a world religions class, which I really liked. Mm -hmm. Just a unusually good teacher. Mm -hmm. um, I had a ballroom dance class, which was <laughs> awesome because I was the only guy in a class full of women. Mm -hmm. And part of our assignment was we had to go out dancing a lot. Nice. And yeah, so that was really cool. Uh -huh. Um, other than that, I liked my history classes and stuff like that. Okay. But I I did have one teacher who uh, really ended up being influential to me. Mm -hmm. And um, she she would just say I she would say, I don't think that just because you're in a community college that you need to be getting a secondary education. Mm. Uh, that it was important to her to sort of treat it like a four-year college, oh. four-year program. Uh -huh. And so when I eventually went on to teach, that's kind of the way, it, what I had in mind. I see. But um, yeah, it wasn't until I got to Mason that I actually picked a degree and gotcha. all that. What, yeah. When you got to Mason, what did you decide to study? Uh, my first, so I got two degrees. Um, I got a bachelor's just in English. Okay. I wanted to be, I, I was stupid. I thought that, <laughs> I thought that you could just, uh, become a literature professor and it was that easy. You could just say, Oh, I want to do that. Uh -huh. And so I studied literature. Okay. And then I, I did know that you have to get a, at least a graduate degree mm -hmm. and probably a PhD. Yeah. Um, it wasn't until like after my first year 
working on my grad degree that I started realizing, number one, this is a lot harder uh, to actually get a, you know, a tenure track career or something like sure, that. Sure. Number two, I don't want a job like that because I don't like I don't like competitive jobs, mm. which is another reason that I don't work for like media companies and sure, stuff sure, like sure. that. And I like teaching. I don't like um, I don't like that public publisher parish type yeah, yeah. aspect of it and having to go to conference and having to do the sort of office politicking that academics mm -hmm. have to do. And mm -hmm. all. it's just the too much opposite of what I want out of a job. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but by then I'm a year into my graduate degree and not quite sure what I'm going to do instead. So I just, um, I moved forward with it, but I, instead of looking at literature, I started studying things that I was just kind of interested in personally. Which, like what at the time? Well, um, so I began by studying Russian literature was my focus. Why did that? Why? What, what, what about that? Like kind of uh, hooked you? I was or attracted you to it. I was in love with a Ukrainian. Oh, <laughs> so, oh, got you, got you, got you. Um, okay, that'll do it. Uh -huh. Yeah, <laughs> it was very. So um, you had to had a language requirement. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember the first year um that I was taking it, the teacher asked, uh, so why are you taking Russian all that? And mm -hmm. people were kind of like not raising their hands. Mm -hmm. And so he was like, okay, how many of you have met a Russian woman? <laughs> and like half of the guy's hands went up. It was really funny. <laughs> that happened in my Swedish classes too, actually. It's a very, I think, I think, um, significant others are a very common reason for wanting to learn yeah. another language. Absolutely. Okay. Um, <laughs> But I, yeah, so I became very interested in um, language learning and Russian. And then for my second year of my language requirement, mm -hmm. I um, went to Moscow and studied Russia there. Ah. Um, and, and that's where you got to look at kind of like, oh, this is kind of how oligarchs probably live. Yeah. And it also, um, it kind of demystified uh, the Soviet Union to me. In what ways? You in the U.S. You sort of come to understand Russia as just a complete dystopia, terrible mm. place to live, mm -hmm. uh, absolute poverty, mm -hmm. um, and of course there is a lot of that. Of course, um, mostly uh, or a lot of it has to do with the vulture capitalism of the '90s that That's came right. in after right. the collapse. But um, there's also so I, one very simple thing is when you actually talk to Russians and ask them mm -hmm. what they thought about the Soviet Union, mm -hmm. you don't get these horror stories sure. and people just uh, talking about how terrible it is. It's it's I think like any other political issue, it's, it's some people will say, yeah, I didn't like it and I like things better now. But they're there are uh, pros and cons to every era. Yeah. yeah. And a good, I forget what the number is, but last I checked, like over half of uh, Russians look back on the Soviet era fondly. Yeah. Um, Stable. There was, there's a lot to be said for it. You know, you walk around in Moscow and you see 
the beautiful metro stations, mm-hmm. the the just loveliest metro stations in the world, mm-hmm. and and they just you know poured money into that. Yep. You go to, I, I had never gone to the opera before I lived in Moscow, mm. and it's dirt cheap there. Anybody can go. Oh wow. They have. Um, it's not an elite like kind of cordoned off nope. cultural activity. No, huh. it's um, sort of what you would call high culture is very democratized over there, I would oh, say. So like um, ditto the ballet and symphony. And yeah. Okay. And you go on the uh, metro station. Everybody's reading mm-hmm. like it, it's nothing like what you see in D.C. Just everybody has their head buried in a book. Yeah. yeah. They have a very, very high literacy rate. Mm. Um, you, I mean, I, I could just, the parks mm-hmm. that now this was more of something I noticed when I lived in Ukraine, mm-hmm. but the parks are just beautiful. Mm, like I very well kept and like manicured and very, uh, very well kept manicured. Um, they have, they have little statues mm-hmm. all over the place. They have, um, sort of like public areas where people can gather they have fountains Mm -hmm. i spent i i had never spent so much time um in parks as i did when i lived in ukraine Mm. it's just and that's like one of the most common especially first dates over there is just going through for a walk in the park sure and you can see why because you go out there and it's beautiful and it's cheap yeah that's right um And so you just see certain differences all over the place Mm -hmm. of how they were able to make um, people's lives, like even the poorest people's lives, a little better in a lot of ways. Uh, Even just funny little things like they they still have a lot of like little make work jobs Mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. So, for example, at every subway at the bottom of the escalator, they have an escalator attendant. Huh. It's a little booth and all they do is they sit there and I guess watch to make sure nobody falls or something like really? that. Really? Yeah. Okay. All right. And that's like, that's somebody's job. That's what they do. Sure. Um, they find little ways to employ like it, it, just little things like people sweeping ice off the streets mm-hmm. and um, or like, a, like a they have an expanded an expanded approach to like what we would understand to be like public works. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, I, that, that really kind of demystified, um, socialism and communism mm-hmm. and all because you were and, able to see the yeah. remnants of it in like in, yeah for yourself and make sense of it for yourself yeah uh-huh. obviously like a lot has changed but you're able to look and you're able to see okay that's the legacy of the soviet yes, union yes, yes. that's uh this is the mcdonald's is capitalism yes yeah. you know i gotcha um at this point at this point in undergrad you'd so mm-hmm. you'd transferred from Pardon me. You transferred from the community college yeah. to George Mason. While you were at George Mason, you yeah. were working on the Nader campaign. Yes. Okay. Um, and, and during your studies at George Mason, you went to uh, uh, Russia for a semester yeah. or two? Yeah, semester. Oh, no, a semester yeah. to study abroad. So describe yourself politically or ideologically. I, I am so sorry. I can't speak English today. <laughs> describe yourself politically or ideologically around that time. Like, how did you how did you make sense of things around that time? um, That was 
during the Bush administration when the uh, Iraq war was really ramping up. Yep. And I was laser focused on that. Why? Um, I think because of my Mennonite background, the pacifist ah, background. Okay. okay. Um, and it, yeah, it just seemed horrible to me. So I started a um, campus group, uh, Students for Peace, mm. um, which was, uh, it, it was kind of me dipping my toes into nonpartisan and non-ideological stuff because mm -hmm. my thought was, okay, I can get a lot of people whose common interest is they don't like this war. I see. And I don't, uh, I don't have to make this, you know, like we already had a college Democrats group yeah. on there and they were kind of, they're very shaky on yeah. it. Um, so I was involved with that. Mm -hmm. And then we had um, a chapter of students for a democratic society, mm -hmm. SDS, mm -hmm. uh, start up there and i was involved with them mm -hmm. um i mostly i felt like i kind of played the role of their legal advisor well, what do you mean <laughs> well you know once when i was working um for ralph nader he had he was giving one of his talks mm -hmm. and one of the people attending there asked him ralph how come you never I, we never see you get arrested yeah um at protests and rallies and Nader replied, I always like to be on the other side of the witness stand because mm. he's, of course, famously very litigious right, and right. he's he's a lawyer, which is why we love him. Yeah. <laughs> and that really kind of informed my thought about this. And mm. I thought, you know, there's a lot I can of good I can do um, just, for example, in SDS, they would organized protests mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And they'd be like, let's do this. And mm -hmm. I would be like, okay, you all understand that that is illegal. Mm -hmm. And so you're putting yourself at risk doing that. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes they would decide not to. Mm -hmm. um, other times I would like get the National Lawyers Guild involved, hmm. especially when they were doing like marches and mm -hmm. rallies and, um, it, and they were worried that they were going to get arrested for sure. dumb reasons. Uh -huh. um, and so I was very much like at that point, I was very much an organizer. Okay. You were I, an, you were on, on, in, on one, on one hand, you had, you had formed this group yeah. anti-war because, yeah. you know, the lead up to the conflict in Iraq was happening. And yeah. then you, you became the, the, the de facto legal advisor <laughs> organizer yeah. for SDS. Yeah. Uh -huh. Because and what, look, how, like, what was the, what was, what was driving this? It, the, your Mennonite background was driving the anti-war, um, uh, uh, organizing and yeah. what was driving your work with the SDS? Uh, it was the same. They were, they were also very involved in the, at that point, they also did some like union drives on campus mm. or just some little things. Like for example, uh, they had a food court on campus mm -hmm. and all the cashiers uh, had to stand up all day. And so yeah. we just made a big deal about, um, making it so the university gave them chairs sure, <laughs> like sure. just little things like that yeah yeah, yeah. um and so there is a I, I would say i was very i was still sort of very much a naderite so at, you were a green party at, member? at that point uh -huh. i wasn't i i wasn't a 
member of the Green Party. I no. mean, I wasn't a member. I have not always been impressed with the Green Party, so I've Why? never been a member. I think, especially during the Jill Stein era, I don't think that they are serious ah. about... Uh, like they, they seemed like publicity stunt campaigns to me. Huh. They weren't, they certainly weren't doing what Nader did. Which was? Well, Nader made, like the Democrats were afraid. Mm -hmm. They were afraid he was going to spoil their elections. Ah. Um, because what, like, I'm saying, what made them afraid? What made what? What made the Democrats afraid? What about Nader's oh. approach to uh, uh, being a green candidate made the Democrats afraid, in your understanding? He very he very actively and aggressively campaigned. Mm -hmm. He was very on top of the news cycle ah. and looked for little opportunities to insert himself in it and to ah. make himself a problem for okay. the Democrats. Um, he was like he was very he, uh, he would make a point of getting on all of the ballots like very aggressively. Mm. Um, now juxtapose this to the Jill Stein era, because I hear a yeah. critique. Jill Stein, in my view, um, how would I put it? I think that the sort of Stein, Stein era can, uh, campaigns were very content to be kind of this token protest. Ah, they were. I did not see them. Like they would, they will pick a couple issues. Like they would say, okay, we're the party of peace and we're the party of the green new deal uh -huh. and stuff like that. And they would put their little platform online. Yeah. Uh, but I wouldn't see them like sort of actively trying to like get into the news. Uh, uh, I wouldn't see like whenever, when Nader was running mm -hmm. and you got out of uh, Metro's station you would always have like guys working for him trying to recruit you ah, get you join the campaign ah, ah, ah. i never saw stein people doing that yeah, no, i don't I. know yeah. i mean part of it is just it's hard to get the ball rolling sure. so nader would usually begin with like maybe 1.5 percent of the vote mm -hmm. or maybe yeah something around those range and so you have some people to work with yeah i don't think i can't remember how high stein got mm -hmm. but she i don't think she was even getting enough support to really run a legitimate campaign i see i see so it I'm I'm interested in spoiler campaigns when they are actually uh, trying to impact the outcome. I don't in like, terms of impact the outcome in what way? I or want, ways. I want so what Nader did. The Nader strategy yeah. is that he said I'm a threat mm -hmm. and you have to win my voters back if you're going to win. Ah. So you have to do, you have to pick up parts of my platform ah. if you're going to win. Otherwise, it, it, you know, otherwise if, they're on the margins that yeah. might cost you. Yeah. I see. I'm the, so, you know, like I'm the, uh, he, he was doing universal health care. Yep. And he was, he, he, he would say stuff like he actually went, uh, during the Kerry campaign one year, he had did this publicity stunt where he walked up to the Kerry headquarters with seven golden platters mm -hmm. and each of them had like an issue like universal health care, mm -hmm. climate change, um, 
I, I can't even remember off the, oh, marijuana legalization, mm -hmm. stuff huh. like that. Yeah, yeah. And for all of them, he was, oh, gay marriage. Mm -hmm. um, and for all of them, he was just like, I'm giving you these uh, issues on silver or golden platter. Ah. They are wildly popular. Mm. Just pick them up, take yeah, them, do run it. with them. Yeah, yeah. And if you do, people won't have a reason to vote for me because ah. that. Um, and so it's um, it's trying to actually get Democrats to pick up these issues by being a credible threat. Ah. If you aren't being a credible threat, they'll just take your vote for granted. And we're going to park right here. What do yeah. you what do you think? What ah, was there? The answer is yes. But was <laughs> there wisdom in that strategy? And do you, and should that strategy have been? The answer is yes. I'm sure you're going to say yes, but I want <laughs> I want to hear your you talk through it. Yeah. Should that strategy have been um, uh, more seriously adopted up to and certainly including Bernie Sanders in 2016 and or 2020? Uh, yeah. So my answer is yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, especially you know in the uh, Bush Gore. Uh, election. Okay, I, uh, yeah. Did it? I, 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 I think in, in name, I support that strategy. And certainly even in philosophically, maybe I don't, maybe that's not the right word. I support that strategy, but uh -huh. did it, did it, did it have an effect? Uh, if we look at, you know what I mean? Like, did it yeah. actually have an effect? And if it didn't, like what, what about that strategy is worthwhile and what isn't, or, or am I missing something else? And I'm not asking yeah. in a, a yeah, yeah, yeah. dickish way, you know? Election outcomes are overdetermined. Yes. Uh, there yes, 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 are yes. a million different, like Nader always said, Al Gore slipped on a million banana peels <laughs> on the way right. to losing. Right. 100%. Um, and, and you can't just point to like one thing. Correct. Correct. Um, Nader, it, but, but that means that you can't take anything for granted. Mm. You have to try to get it all right because ah. you never know whether, you know, if you if you don't uh, have a better stance on climate change, then maybe those Nader votes are going to be the ones that cause you to lose. Sure. So when it came to uh, Bush and Gore, mm. um, for one thing, I think that the Democratic Party lost that for themselves. One thousand um, percent. Yeah. And and not just because of the way they campaigned, but because of everything that happened in Florida. One hundred percent. They didn't. They didn't. They didn't contest challenge. the entire. They have very little sympathy for that. Of course. I also, um, I think that a lot of uh, Democrats take for granted stuff like we wouldn't have gotten involved in the Iraq War no, if Gore had won. And it's very clear. I mean, they were always like they were already involved in military action yeah. uh, during the Clinton era. And Gore was very ha had made statements about this. Yeah. I, I I do not take that for granted yeah. at all. Yeah. So um, I think that I mean, it's only ever going to do so much. So okay. we're talking about elections mm -hmm. and elections can do some things, but not others. Okay. I think insofar as you're running an election, yeah, it only makes sense if you are in it to win it. Yeah. Um, and if you, if you aren't, if you're just doing some symbolic thing or yeah. whatever, don't, don't run. It's not, it's uh, a waste of everybody's time and, and it's energy. making people think that there's more options than there actually are. Mm. So 
yeah, I think I think that Bernie definitely, especially in 2016, Mm -hmm. should have threatened a third party run. Mm. Um, I liked what Gloria LaRiva did. Yeah. Who is I voted for her the last two times she ran. Uh And this time around, her strategy was uh, if Bernie wins, we will not contest swing states. Oh, right on. If he gets the uh, primary vote. Mm -hmm. If he doesn't, then we're campaigning everywhere. Okay. And what that does is that even puts pressure on Democrats in the primaries. You think? Well, I mean, so what you have to the calculation you have to make then is you have to think, okay, we can vote for Biden. Mm -hmm. But if we do vote for Biden, then we know that there's going to be this person siphoning, trying to siphon his votes away Mm -hmm. who won't come into play at all if Bernie did. But I don't, that wasn't. But that you think that the the de, the hive mind of the DNC was thinking like that because oh no 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 no, no. okay uh-huh. no but it, it it's a it's a good strategy um, I see. whether you can so you know if she's if she's like running a Nader level uh, campaign where she's actually getting that much support yeah. uh, and people are afraid of her and consider her a credible threat. Mm-hmm then yeah, they will definitely, Democrats freak out about very small margins. Mm. They, in 2004, the amount of money and time they spent just trying to keep Nader from taking like 1% here, 0.5% there, Mm -hmm. um, they took him to court. They Mm -hmm. spent so much, they were trying to bankrupt his campaign. Sure, It was a deliberate strategy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, they do because it it's a strategy that works on paranoia. All you have to do is get them paranoid that mm. maybe mm. it'll become a problem. I see. Gloria Larivo wasn't going to do that because um, she just wasn't picking up enough uh, steam to be a credible threat. Yeah, yeah. She even changed her vice presidential pick halfway through mm-hmm. stuff like that. So hmm. she she had trouble getting the ball rolling. I but, gotcha. Yeah. We got a twofer this week someone with a front row seat to the corruption of Hillary Clinton and her bagman, Terry. <laughs> Amazing! <laughs> and they wonder why people check out. Maybe because, ah, things are rigged. <laughs> okay, deep breath. <laughs> Tune in to part two, where we take a trip to Russia and Ukraine, as well as the community college that Carl taught at, along with Jill Biden, and lots of discussion about Marx. Head on over to Patreon for part two at patreon.com slash what's left to do. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash what's left to do. If you'd like to make a donation in the tip jar instead, head over to what's left to do dot com slash support. Okay, see you over on Patreon for part two.